Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with all of you this morning. Um, I uh, live in a very, very strange kind of season in my life in my home uh, because uh, in between my eight children that I have, uh, there is such a span of age now that it, it feels like there's multiple worlds going on in my home simultaneously. You know, generally when you have all small kids or all medium kids or all uh, you know, teenage kids, it's kind of like that's what you get when you get that. But I, I kind of have the span. So my nine-year-old son, uh, he uh, loves to wield weapons. Uh, he, he has a sword in his hand all the time, essentially, uh, even if it's just his arm. And he runs around and he, he is accurate and efficient in wielding any lightsaber of any kind or any pretense of lightsaber of any kind. And he's gotten to the point now where being a nine-year-old, he's a little stronger than he anticipates. And, and in fact, just yesterday, my 16-year-old daughter said to me, Dad, you need to talk to Cole. He's stronger than he thinks. And when he hits us with that stuff, it hurts now. And so it's like, you know, it used to be cute. It used to be like, dink, and you're like, oh, little Coley. But now it's not cute anymore. Now it's, it, it produces uh, and inflicts pain and damage. And so I've got that going on, and I've got I to deal with how to handle weapons of that kind in our home, because they're, they're going to exist. It's a question of how to handle them. But simultaneously, while my nine-year-old's running around wielding swords, uh, I now have children on the other side of the spectrum, my, uh, my son and my daughter who are in their teenage years that are, are also uh, wielding incredible weapons. They're these little cards and they have their picture on them and they're called learner's permits, right? And those things, man, those things are real weapons. I mean, you think a lightsaber is bad, all it can do is slice you in half. Now these little things, man, they, they hold some power. So uh, I'm in the process now of having two children in my home that are in the process of learning how to operate a motor vehicle among the other human beings on this planet and in this country. And, and that, takes, that takes some serious work. So uh, for those of you that have gone through it, you know this already, but you discover quickly along the way if you're going to be teaching a child to drive a car, there's so many layers to that. My son is on the front end of the learning curve, so the first thing you have to do is you have to teach them how the car actually works, right? What the steering wheel does, what the gas and brake pedal does, what the gears do, because if you get those things wrong, it can be disastrous, right? If you hit the gas pedal when you intend to stop the car, it has the opposite impact, and then it has a significant picture. If you can't think simultaneously how to use your hands to turn the wheel while exchanging your feet, that's going to be problematic. That's where we're at with my son right now, right? If we're talking steering, he's got that down, but then you never know what he's going to do down here. I mean, we could be turning a corner at 130 miles an hour. because Break! But wait, that's feet. I'm on hands right now. I'm like, you need both. You know, uh, or he may, he may stop very quickly but not avoid turning simultaneously. So just the operating of the vehicle itself is complicated. And it takes some, some retraining and some brain work. And so we're working on that. And, and we have uh, in that process and his driving, the little bit of driving is done now. There have been multiple occasions where lampposts and cars have almost been collided with. And that's in a parking lot where they're standing still. So I'm like, okay, we got work to do, okay? Then, after that, while learning to operate the actual vehicle itself, uh, he also, like my daughter, have to learn all the rules of the road. 
There's all these thousands of rules that you need to know because they were set up to keep you safe and other people safe from you. Uh, There's signs, hundreds of signs, and they all say different things, and you need to know what they mean and why they're there, and there's lines on the road and different color lines and reflectors, and, and you need to know when which thing means what thing and when to do what with it. And you can't have a book on your dashboard, and every time you, st- you see a stop sign, you're like, I don't know what to do, and you pull and you look, people are honking behind you, you need to know this stuff. So you gotta, you got to teach them all the rules and they got to take exams on those so that we know that they know them and, and that for, for in, in any circumstance they'll know what something means and do what it says. So once they learn to operate the motor vehicle, really the rules are the big journey to follow. But then you finish with the rules and you realize the rules are nothing. That's, that's a cakewalk. I can teach a five-year-old those rules with enough time and I can teach a five-year-old to operate a, a vehicle. The problem is not the rules of the vehicle. The problem is all the distractions. I I tell my daughter now, who's on the back end of the learning curve, about to get her driver's license, the real weapon, right? And, And so I tell her, listen, your friends are your enemies in the car. They are your enemies. They're trying to talk to you. They're trying to make small talk. They're trying to tell jokes. They're trying to engage you in conversation. You can't engage. Because if you engage in that, then you're not focused on the road. Then you die. And everybody dies. So it's, it, you, you, you got to stay focused. So uh, you have distractions around you. I, I tell my daughter regularly now, okay, listen, listen. Would you go and would you drink a bunch of alcohol, get yourself completely intoxicated, and then drive the car? She goes, no, I don't, I don't even drink alcohol. I would, I would never do that. And I go, I know. But when you pick up a cell phone and look at a text, you may as well. Because it's the same thing statistically. More people die because people look at their phones than people that get drunk. So if you're not willing to get intoxicated, you shouldn't be willing to look at your phone. So that's a big deal because that little phone, it's like a, it's like a powerful little distractor, isn't it? it? It makes these little noises. And every time it does, it tells you, it tells your brain, you need to look. Somebody sent you a message. It might be important. They might need something. And who cares that you're traveling at 70 miles an hour towards something you could kill? No, just look at the phone. And so I got a teacher. There's lots of distractions. Weather changes in Florida. It's sunny. There's a storm. It's sunny. And that could happen in five minutes. And so you never know what you're going to hit. So you got to be ready. You got to be in the vehicle. You got to know how the vehicle works so you don't have to think about it. You got to know the rules so that you know how to play on the road. And then you got to understand their distractions and they're going to try to pull you away from where you need to be focused. And if you think all oh, that's hard, that's a cakewalk. Those three things I can teach a five year old. Do you know what I can't teach a five year old? There are other human beings on the road too, other drivers. And the thing about the other drivers is they're stupid. They, they, they may not know the rules. Lots of them don't. They may not care about the rules. They may not care about the cell phone. They may not care about you. They may do whatever they want. And when they do, they may endanger your life and endanger their life. And you got to be ready for that. You are driving on a road, not isolated by yourself, following a set of rules, keeping focus from the distractions and knowing how to operate the vehicle. You are driving among other human beings who are going to do stuff at you all the time. And you got to know how to respond and react to those around you. You got to know when the rules may not apply by the book because it's safer to divert from the rules so you don't die. 
right? You got to know when to make that decision and when not to. You got to know stuff, and that stuff I can't just teach you. I got to give you a principle to say, here's generally how you handle that and get used to it so that you don't act foolishly, either sticking to the rules when you shouldn't, not to when you should, and not paying attention when you ought to, or not knowing how to operate the vehicle to make it do what it needs to do when it needs to do it. Are you exhausted yet? I'm exhausted, and we're not even in the car. Here's what I've realized. Teaching kids to drive up and operate motor vehicles and having them drive is a death trap. There's more opportunities to be hurt and die than anything else I can imagine. And my job as a dad, my heart for my kids as a dad, is not that they would behave well on the road. It's that they will be safe so that they will have the freedom of driving. It is a great freedom to have, is it not? but that they would have the responsibility in that freedom to create life for themselves and others and not death. So freedom I want for them, life I want for them, so I'm going to be hard on them so that they can operate this vehicle in a manner worthy of the responsibility on the road. Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. He was planting churches, and in Corinth, he planted this church. He, he gathered in the city. He preached the gospel. People came to know Jesus. He established a church. He spent a number of months, even years, discipling that church, teaching them about the gospel, the reality of the gospel, how it works, how it functions, what it is, what it means to us, to our souls, to our futures, to our purpose. He spent time teaching them the implications of the gospel and how it plays out in our lives and the lives of those around us. Then he left them and he traveled on through Ephesus back to Antioch into Galatia and then uh, was, was in that region of the world coming back around to Ephesus. Then when he gets to Ephesus, what happens? He gets word from Corinth. This has now been a number of months, even years since he was there. And the word comes back and goes, they are derailing, man. They, they, have, they have forgotten the gospel as a church. They have forgotten it's how it works. They've forgotten its implications. They've made stuff up, up about how it works now. Uh, they've made stuff up about how it's supposed to pl play out in everyday life. They're twisting your words you taught them. You gotta get on them. So Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians into a context in Corinth to a people, a church, Christ followers, who have been so uh, drawn back through distractions into their cultural context that they are now behaving badly with the gospel in their hands. And that is creating not freedom and life, but it is creating a mess. So that's what Paul is writing this letter. So it's a firm letter, but it is a firm letter with the heart of a man that God has stirred to say, my heart for you is life and freedom. I'm not correcting you to correct you. I'm correcting you because you are creating death and destruction, not life and freedom, and you don't have to. So he writes them. In this context, as he writes, he spends the first part of the letter really working through a number of issues within the church, kind of saying, look, the dissension that's taking place, the pride that's taking place, the way you're dealing with each other, the way, it's just all of the, the factions that are taking place. It's a giant mess. It shouldn't look like this. We are bigger than this. God made us the church. And he deals with all these issues within the church, tolerance and intolerance, and when which one should play out and how it should play out. And he does that. In chapter 8 and 9 of the letter, he begins to really uh, paint a bigger picture and say, look, I'm telling you all these things because here's how our lives work. Once we come to Christ, 
we had a bunch of rights and a bunch of entitlements which we still hold. You have the right to certain things. You have entitlement to certain things. But when Christ came and redeemed your soul, redeemed your future, he purchased you. He bought you. That's what the scriptural uh, uh, language is. He purchased your soul from the dead into freedom and life. And so you belong to him now. So your rights and your entitlements are his rights and his entitlements. And so whenever you have the opportunity to take what is a right of yours and lay it down for the sake of the gospel, that is the way to live. That's the way to live. Because you belong to Christ now, not to yourself. It's not about you. It's about him because he is your freedom. He is your life. He is everything, right? And then he says, if you're going to go out in the world and live this way, don't think it's going to come easy. There's going to be a bunch of distractions. The culture's still there. It's still shouting, this is a better way. You deserve this. You should have this. Can you believe that? And, and then you're going to go, oh, yeah, I should. Poor me. And then you're going you're to divert and you're going to engage in these distractions, and we call them tensions or temptations. And so Paul goes, if you're going to have to deal with temptation, I, I can help you with that. And God, through Paul, speaks to us. And last week, we unpacked the part of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, here's the reality. You live in the culture you live in. They're going to shout at you. Here's how you handle that. Here's how you endure temptation. Here's what God is doing for you. And we discovered that. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to elevate our calling beyond all of the things he's traveled in and say, listen, you are engaged in this culture. A lot of complicated things happen in the culture that we haven't spoken directly to you about. And I'm going to try to give you some principles when you're dealing with the other human beings with the gospel on how to navigate all the gray areas of life and all the areas that may be a little difficult in your cultural context. And I'm going to use some real life examples to do it. And that's what we're about to engage in. And it's good for us because we live in a culture that's quite demanding in its distractions and and in its information toward us, right? So uh, let's just talk Corinth for a second so you know before we read what we're getting into. In the Corinthian world, in that city, it was a city of idol worship in the sense of actual idols in actual temples, statues they worship. They had multiple gods, and they would come depending on what they wanted or needed and sacrifice to those gods to get what they want, okay? So that's the pagan way, right? I want something, I appease some god, that god gives me what I want. If he doesn't, then obviously I didn't appease him rightly, that's how pagan systems work. That's not how God works with us, even though sometimes we do feel that way, don't we? I make him happy. He gives me what, he want, what I want. That's not how God works. So don't try that with him. That doesn't go so well. So, um, but in the pagan world, it does. So that's the, the culture. Now, because that's the foundation of the culture, listen, this is what's important right here. All of the social networks, all of the entertainment, all of the time you had with other people that was fun, functioned around the sacrificial system toward idols. It's just how it worked, because that was central to them. So if you were going to hang with some friends, it wouldn't be uncommon to shoot by the temple, go through some ceremony with them there, sacrificing some meat to some gods, and then having a potluck afterwards. It's kind of what you did. You want to hang with people, you hang at the temple. You want to hang with people, you go to their home, and then their home would function around some of these idols and things, because that was everyday life. So if you lived in Corinth, and you wanted to engage with your friends who were not part of the church, you would often find yourself in spaces like the temple going through idol worship or their homes eating stuff and doing things that related in some way. So Paul's saying, we got to help you with that, right? 
Now, what Paul has already shown us is that the solution to a culture that is so distracting and demanding is not to hide from it, right? Because on mission, we are to engage in the culture, to become relevant to the culture with the gospel so that they might discover the wonder of Christ. But how do you do that without derailing in the culture? How do you know what decisions to make when you're with the culture? How do you know what to do and not to do when other people are involved? Great questions, Paul is going to write to the church in Corinth and say and tell them now. Now, a bunch of the people in the church are often going by the temple with their friends and sacrificing a bunch of meat to a bunch of idols and having some fun. So Paul's going to start there. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. If you're in the Bibles we provide, page 662. 662. If you're in the Bibles we provide, if you brought your own Bible or a smart device, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. So, Paul has finished a paragraph on the tensions and temptations in which we live in a culture that's demanding, and now he says this in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from adultery. I'm going to stop there for a second, okay, because I I want us to stand there for a second. In everything Paul's about to unpack and all the nuances of 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 the, the gray areas of life and our cultural concept, he does want one thing not to be gray. You ready? Here's what he wants. If something is an idol to you, if something has captivated your heart, that it matters a great deal to you more than what's important, more than what God says important, or more than God then you ought to flee from that period, okay? So in other words, what he's saying is if it's idolatry, if you're captivated by it, if it matters that much to you that you need it, then you ought to be trying to disengage from it because it's an idol in your life. And we always stand on this. We flee from idolatry. Why? Because God says you worship one God, only one, and that's him because he is your rescuer. He is your everything. So when we worship other things, whether relationships are our idolatry, whether entertainment is our idolatry, whether addiction of some form has become our idolatry, whether we've engaged in resource collection, which is our idolatry. Our culture has numerous idolatrous ways to live, right? Relationships, resources, circumstances can become idolatry. And he goes, listen, if, it, if you've already evaluated that this is, this is idolatry, well, then, then there's an obvious answer, right? Flee from it. Get, get away from it. Stop it. Stop it. Because that's not good for your soul. It's not good for the gospel. It's not good for anything. It's not good for anyone. Don't do it. Now we're going to talk about how that plays out and where it gets gray. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. I love that Paul starts here because here's what he's saying. Okay, folks, listen, I'm going to talk to you about some stuff right now, and I'm going to hope that you are actually a thinking person, because the way you're behaving is foolish. You are not thinking. The stuff I'm about to tell you should be obvious. It should be a no-brainer, but I've been told it's not a no-brainer to you, so I'm going to speak to you as though you're actually sensible. So it's kind of a little poke, right? You're not acting sensible, but I think you should be sensible, so I'm going to pretend you are, and I'm going to talk as though this should make sense, Okay? So, because these people are acting crazy, right? Take a look at this. Look what he says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we we who are one body, for we all partake of one bread. It's kind of a weird place to start, isn't it? 
Now, now remember, the reason this is kind of difficult to read sometimes is because Paul is illustrating things that happen within the church to tie it to things they're experiencing in the culture. What is Paul talking about here with the bread and the, and the cup? Okay, we can guess, right? It's the communion table. And when does the communion table happen? The communion table happens when we gather together for the purpose of fellowship in worshiping God and remembering the gospel, and then we come to communion to come to that table. Is the wine or the juice in the cup magical? No. You can pour it out of that cup once you're done with the communion table into a bottle and drink it and nothing will happen to you. Okay? It's just juice. It's just wine. Is the bread somehow magical because it's on this table? No, it's, it's just bread. You can take it outside and eat it after you're done. It's fine. It won't hurt you. It won't bless you. It's just bread. Why is it so powerful then when it's on this table? Because when it sits on this table, it's not just wine and bread or juice and bread. It is the representation, the embodiment of the remembrance of Christ. And so what Paul is saying is when you come together in fellowship for the purpose of remembering the gospel and you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, are you simply just eating bread and drinking wine? No. You are participating in the remembrance of Christ, the worship of Christ. And so you are participating in Christ and that matters, doesn't it? So you don't take that table lightly. Why is he telling us this? Watch, watch. He's using it as an illustration. It's beautiful. Look at what he says next. Consider the people of Israel, verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. So in the Old Testament, the high priest, when he would bring a sacrifice to God to, um, to, uh, to come to God for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel, what they would do, what God commanded them to do, was to present the sacrifice, and then after the sacrifice is presented, to actually the, the high priest would participate in the eating of that sacrifice as a functional sign to say, this sacrifice is not something outside of me. It's something I participate in. It is of me. It is for me. It is for you so that we can be in relationship. And so there was a participation in the ceremonies of bringing sacrifice for the atonement of sin. You with me? So he said, did, did they not eat of the sacrifice to participate in the active engagement with God? course they did. And when does the table of communion and these kinds of things take place? In the temple uh, or in the fellowship of the saints, which is our temple now, right? When you're in your home breaking bread together, you are the fellowship of the saints, which means you are the temple of God then, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever we gather for that sake, we are participating in what is happening with God. It's an act of worship. Now look what he says. What do I imply then? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So remember, he's talking to the Corinthians about their participation in the ceremonies, in the temple, during the sacrifices with the idols so they can hang with their friends. He's going, okay, listen, here's the deal. Do you not participate when you come to the table of communion or did the Israelites not participate in sacrifice? So consider then this, am I saying that food offered to idols is the problem? No, the meat's not the problem. Am I saying that the idols are the problem? No, they're just statues. You can topple them. They have no power over you. Look what he says. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So here's what he's saying. Folks, the meat isn't the problem. The statue isn't the problem. It is the heart of man that is giving himself to what? Either to God or to demons. Those are your two options on the table when you are participating in ceremonies of sacrifice to someone. Okay? So when you're doing that, you're giving yourself to something that is not God, and that's demonic. So he goes, listen, I don't want you to do that. Does that sound, I'm, I'm talking to sensible people here, does that sound sensible to you? No, you don't do that. So he goes, look, guys, Corinthians, if you go out there, hang with the, with the buddies at the temple, they're in the process of a ceremony of sacrificing meat to idols, don't participate. Excuse yourself. Go, this ain't for me. Tell them why, but don't be part of it because you can't actively be engaged in a ceremony to demons and actively engaged in a ceremony to worship God. That's not congruent. It doesn't work. You represent the reality of Christ now. He, he closes with this little thought, this paragraph. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why does he say that at the very end? Because God loves us and God is not going to allow us as the church or as individual saints within the church to participate in things that are damaging to us, to the gospel, to the kingdom of God, and to other people, and just sit back and leave it alone. This is not an emotional jealousy. Like God gets all bent out of shape. I'm so jealous for you. I can't believe you're doing that. I'm going to smack you upside the head. I'm going to be mad at you and not talk to you for six days. That's not how God functions. This is a holy jealousy. It is, a, In fact, God's jealousy is one of our great gifts. It is God saying, I will not stand aside while the church participates in things damaging to them, to the gospel, to my kingdom, and to others. I will engage. And when I engage in that way, it's not going to go well. Because that's going to be a very firm con conversation. You ever been with your kids and you need to have that very hard conversation? Is it because you hate them? No, it's because you love them. Now, they don't think that. They go, you hate me. No, I don't hate you. I'm just gonna talk really loud and really firmly because if you don't get this, you die. And I don't want you to die. And so I'm gonna be on you about this, right? And so that's how we're going to engage and that's God. And he says, you, you don't wanna play around being stronger than God. That doesn't work well, it, it never goes. I tell my kids that all the time. I will always win. I will always win. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm always gonna win because I hold the power. I hold the power to ground you, to take your stuff from me because it's my stuff. I mean, I always win, so don't fight me. It's not worth it. It's a waste of time. And I'll win bigger if you fight me. <laughs> it's not like a vengeance thing. It's a love thing. Trust me. Okay, here we go. Okay, there's a bit of vengeance in there, but hey, I'm human too. Um, so here's the deal. Look what he does now. So has he made himself clear? I'm talking to sensible people. Do not participate in idol worship with others when they're worshiping idols. It's not good. Now, just as an FYI, in our cultural context, you're generally not heading out there uh, to a temple this afternoon to go hang with some friends and sacrifice some meat to some idols, right? When last have you done that? Like, I don't, I don't know, I've never done that. That's right, that's not our context. But remember, we live in a culture full of idols. 
And so, ready? Just take a deep breath. It's going to poke a bit, okay? It's going to hurt a little bit, okay? Here we go. There are many of us that sit here, and what we're really thinking about is what game is going to be on at 4 o'clock, right? And how we're going to make sure that no matter what, we're not going to miss that game, because if we miss that game, that's a disaster. Uh, what he's saying is be careful, whether it's in the entertainment. There's many of us that go, I don't watch that show with my girlfriends because I love hanging out with my girlfriends. I watch that show because if I miss that show, it's going to be a disaster. I don't want anyone to tell me on Monday what it was about, right? And so entertainment can be an idol in our culture. Be careful that you are not saying, I'm just hanging with friends, but you're actually participating in things that matter to you more than they ought to. Uh, collecting resources, shopping and stuff like that can be an idol or it can be a social engagement with friends. See what Paul's saying? Be careful that when you're participating in these spaces, you're not participating in the ceremonies that are our cultural ways of engaging our idols. But be sure that when you're doing it, you're doing it in the manner that says I'm with you because I'm your friend and I want the gospel to be made known to you. And he's saying you can't do that in the temple while you're sacrificing meat to statues. Can't do it. Meat's irrelevant, statues irrelevant, demons relevant. Okay, now look what he says. You would think now he would go on to talk about how we engage in these items of meat and stuff in the everyday world, and he does. He says in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is interesting because what Paul's doing here is this. He's using a quote from the Corinthians. When Paul was with the Corinthians in Corinth, he brought the gospel to bear. And what does the gospel do? The gospel says uh, that we, the believers, therefore there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, for we have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit, right? Okay, so you could take that and go, so wait, the, the law no longer applies to me, so I can do whatever I want. And so the Corinthians did that. This was one of their quotes. That's why it's in quotations in the scripture. Paul's quoting them. He's not making a statement. He's going like this. Like he used to say, when, remember when he said earlier in this letter, uh, you know how you all always say the stomach is for food and the food is for stomach? And then he talked about that. He's doing the same thing here. You all go around saying uh, all things are lawful, quote unquote, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful, quote unquote, but not all things build up. Now look, notice, what Paul is not doing is he's not undoing that statement. Did you notice that? He didn't say, that's wrong. There's lots of law things and you better stick to them. He goes, you are correct. All things under the gospel are lawful. I'll get to that. But if they're not helpful, if they don't build up, then they are breaking the law of the Spirit, which is what we are now under the law of Christ. We are not under the legalistic law, but the legalistic law is not what drives us. The law of the Spirit does, and that's an elevation of the legalistic law, not a diminishing of it. We are free from it, but only to be able to be helpful and build up. So he goes, look, you can say it's, it's, all things are lawful all day long, and I'll still come back at you and say, but it's not helpful. What you're doing is not helpful. Not helpful for the gospel, not helpful for you, not helpful for others. What point is it? It's not building up. That's not good. So look what he, got, what, look what he says now. Now he's going to use this dynamic and teach us how to live in our culture in a relevant way that engages the gospel without falling for the things of the culture. Look. Eat whatever is, solid, uh, is sold in the market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fulfillment thereof. If one of your unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. See, what he's doing is this. He's saying, listen, when you go out in the marketplace, 
I've to- told you that idol worship is bad, but you don't have to go around and say, excuse me, before I be- buy this meat, is, was, this, was this sacrifice to idols? Well, yeah, it was. I'm I touching it. Stinking demons in that meat. What he's saying is that there are no demons in the meat. The demons can't go in the meat, okay? You don't eat the meat and then eat the demons and then get demonic. It's not how it works. The ceremony that you participate in may be two demons, but the meat is just meat, folks. So what he's trying to do to the Corinthians here is saying, you know, we make all this stuff up like, oh my gosh, that, that book has this sign on it and that meat has this. It, 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 you, that, doesn't impa- that, does, that doesn't overcome you. Meat is meat. Eat it. Enjoy it. You don't have to go around the market and be all like, oh my gosh, it's a sacrifice. And, and oftentimes in the marketplace, uh, kind of like a kosher way, uh, many would sell meat that way. Uh, here's some meat sacrificed to such and such a God's better meat. And what Paul's saying is, if it's better meat because it's from a better cut of the cow, grab it and eat it. Doesn't matter that it was sacrificed to anyone. You don't have to worry about that because you don't live under that reality. You are free to enjoy what is God's because just because somebody prayed over it doesn't make it anything. It's just meat. Eat it. And if you go to a neighbor's house and they're not a believer, you don't have to pull this one. Excuse me. The meat we're eating tonight, did you sacrifice it to anyone? I did. Uh, I can't eat it. See, I'm a Christian now. If I eat that meat, it's very bad for me. Or, no, I didn't sacrifice it, but I bought it from such and such marketplace, and they did. Oh, I can't touch it. He said, stop acting that way. That's inappropriate. It, it would, you know, I, I thought about our context, because you know, generally we don't sacrifice foods to stuff all the time, so that's probably not going to be a, a general daily reality for you. Go over to a friend's house and like, hey, did you sacrifice the meat to some god? Just so I'm sure. Like, we don't really do that, right? But there are other, there are other spaces, right? Uh, let's say, for example, you have made the decision for the guarding of your heart and mind that, that you don't spend the majority of your time listening to Lady Gaga and secular music and all that crazy stuff, right? Because of all the stuff that comes with it. So you've decided, I'm sticking to Z88, I'm not going to 1051, or I'm not going to, you know, whatever. And so that's what you do. And then you're convicted by that, and it's a big deal to you now. By the way, quick side note, don't be walking out of here saying, Renault said don't listen to secular music, 1051's it. I'm not saying that at all. There are, that is a range of gray and freedom. I'm just saying if, you're, if you were convicted not to do that uh, by uh, some uh, personal conviction, which would be appropriate if you're guarding your heart and mind, and you go to a friend's house, and you walk in the door, and 1051's playing, you don't have to go, oh, I'm I'm so sorry, I I can't come in here. And and would you do me a huge favor? Could you switch it to Z88.3? Because I just, you know, I've made a decision about not listening to that secular stuff, and then it's Lady Gaga, and I I can't listen to that. Paul's like, stop it. Stop acting like fools. Go in, enjoy the meal. 1051's not going to kill you. Because this is not about legalism. It's not about that. It's about the other person. That's what it's about. Uh, listen, listen to this. I, I skipped this purposefully because I wanted to touch on that first. Look, look at what he said right before that. Look what he said. He said, um, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Then he says, eat whatever you get in the market. Do you see what he's doing? He's going, look, the, the law of the Spirit, the law of Christ says this. You wake up every morning as a Christ follower, and you seek what is best for everybody around you so that they would experience the gospel best and know Christ best, and then do that. And if that means you lay down some legalistic conviction for a short moment for the sake of others, then do it. If that means that you go eat some meat in the market, great. And frankly, you can eat the meat in the market. That's not a problem because you are bigger than that now. Do you see what he's saying? I remember uh, years ago, 
Um, I was engaged with a group of people. Uh, they were not people that knew Christ. And, and I, I got more and more engaged with them and had some space and have some space in their lives to really speak into some things. Um, and, and they were, when they partied, man, they partied, okay? So, and there was always alcohol involved and it was always a fair amount. And so uh, I was in student ministries, okay? So I didn't touch alcohol because in the student ministries world, I didn't want to establish any kind of world where my students would have gray areas to have to deal with because their student ministries pastor was drinking alcohol responsibly, but they didn't know what that meant. And so I just made a decision for that season of my life, not touching the stuff, uh, because that's just better for me and for the students and for everything else, right? And so I was doing it, and I was in the middle of that world. And I would go to these parties, and I, I, I perceived pretty quickly that they were not used to having a pastor around, okay? And then you see, they didn't roll in pastor circles much, okay? And so I was a super nervous space for them. I walked in, the whole party changed. You know, you know how people are like suddenly like, oh my gosh, and then walk over here where he's over there, you know, and, and then suddenly, but you, you get that feeling, don't you? You get that feeling like somehow they think I'm walking around with a Bible in my back pocket going, oh, it's bad. Oh, that's, oh my, oh my, I'm, I'm going to pray against you, right? And so I knew this is not a good space. This is not a comfortable space. And so one day, a third or fourth time I went to a party, I was there and one of the people came up to me and they said, hey, can I get you a drink? And I said, you know, I'll take a Bud Light. Oh my gosh, you could have heard a pin drop in that place. Went, Ding. Like, oh my gosh, the pastor's going to drink a beer. Hell's going to freeze over and God's going to come down. I'm like, no, it's just beer. It's, it's not, now I'm not going to drink five, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to drink three, but, but I'll take a Bud Light. I've been told by our executive pastor, Bud Light is a horrible, horrible beer to drink, and I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, but the point is not that. The point is this. There are times and places where Paul gives us this extraordinary freedom to say this. If something is going to advance my kingdom, if something's going to make the gospel beautiful, if something's going to bring glory to my name, if something's going to establish a building up for the people around you, then by all means step into that. And if something you do is going to tear them down, break them down, even if you have the freedom to do it, by all means don't. Do you see what he's saying? Your freedoms are not yours to do with whatever you want and your restrictions are not the things that you have to live by when the people around you need you to shift out of the way or shift into the way to save them. Do you see, you drive the car with the rules but sometimes you gotta divert for the sake of death not happening. And so he goes, listen, have freedom with your neighbor. Now look, this is super cool. Look what he says here. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed, uh, don't raise any questions. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, they give you that information. I just want you to know this meat's been offered to a God. Enjoy. Have a great meal. Look what he says. Look at this. Then do not eat it. Really? You just told me not to offend them. He goes, no, no. If they come and tell you, sacrifice to a God, then don't eat it. Look at this. Look at this for the sake of the one who informed you. Isn't that fascinating? For their sake, not yours. You can still eat the meat. The meat's still just the meat. Just because he told you demons didn't fly in it, right? I, it's not about the meat. It's about the person. That's our entire focus is the hearts of those around us. And he says, then don't eat the meat for the person who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So our first initial thought would be the sake of your conscience now, right? Now that you know it's sacrificed to idols, don't touch it. I hear that in Christian circles all the time. You know, I, I, I was doing that, but then I found out that, and then I stopped immediately because I didn't know that before. I'm like, well, you were just as free before as after. <laughs> Knowing it didn't change it. The meat's still just the meat, right? But everything has changed. But he doesn't say for the sake of your conscience. Your conscience is already clean, isn't it? Look what he says. For the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, for his conscience, the person who told you the meat was sacrificed. 
Because look, he says, why should I, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? He goes, look, I'm not telling you not to eat the meat because your conscience is now pricked and you can't eat the meat. You, no one can determine your freedoms. Only Christ can do that. And so you are free to eat the meat even after they've told you that the meat is sacrificed. But why wouldn't you eat the meat? Because for the sake of that person's conscience and for the sake of that person's future, that's why you don't eat the meat. Why is Paul saying this? Because in this context, listen carefully now, in this context, oftentimes when you went to somebody's home, you were either going to the home of a brand new believer or someone that was almost a believer. They were part of the church but had not yet come to know the gospel. And so they still functioned in the worlds of sacrifice. And you as a mature believer were responsible for them to continue to grow them out of idol worship into God. So if someone actually bothered to tell you, FYI, this is sacrifice to idols, their conscience is already pricked and you ought to say, well, brother, let's not eat it then. Brother, why would we engage in eating something that has been sacrificed to demons when you and I could easily go grab a piece of meat and enjoy it or just eat some veggies tonight? And in the meantime, while we're at it, let me explain to you why we, we, we're not going to eat the meat tonight. Not because the meat's bad, not because the demon's in it, but because what happened still matters to you. And since it still matters to you in your heart, we ought to undo that. You see, what you're saying to your friend is this. This still seems to be important enough to you that we ought to undo it. We're back to where we started, right? Flee from idolatry if it's idolatry. And it's idolatry to your friend. They just told you that. So help them not to be idolatrous. It's a beautiful joy you have. Don't judge them. Guide them. Lead them. Be gentle with them. But oftentimes, also when you went to dinner, the non-believers were testing the church. Are these an, a compromising people? A people that don't give a rip about what matters to them now? Because who you followed and who you chose to follow as a God, you had to be loyal to that God. And so sometimes it was a test. This meat's been sacrificed to such and such a God. They're going to eat it. Watch this. And he's going, look, once they've told you, there's a motive, Right? They're not going to tell you if there's no motive. Either the motive is their conscience is pricked or the motive is they're testing you. And in that case, don't eat it. But be gracious. Just go, hey, thank you for sharing that with me. I so appreciate that. You know, in general, I just don't love participating in things that are demonic. And um, maybe we should, no, you're not going to do that over a sports game, okay? Just please. Don't. See, I'm so nervous with these messages because I'm like, you're all going to go home like, I, I ain't watching sport anymore. I'm not going to participate with demons with you all. That's, that's not what we're going to do, okay? We can watch sport. We just need to evaluate our hearts and make sure it's not an idol. And so here's the deal. Look at this. I love this. Now Paul's going to go, look, here's what I'm trying to say. It's all complicated, but here's what I'm trying to say. Let's make it simple. Here's the principle. Let's make it simple. So verse, verse 31. So, so here it is. Whether you eat or drink or whether you do or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that, the, that of many so that they may be saved. See, our entire motive on this planet now should be to speak, to act, in a manner to bring glory to God and to make the gospel beautiful so that those around us can experience the gospel daily, whether they are believers or unbelievers, right? If somebody knows Jesus, should you be preaching the gospel to them through your words and actions? The answer is yes. It's not a trick question. All the time. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to each other, church. Preach the gospel to the world. So in every endeavor, whatever you're eating or drinking or not eating or not drinking, whatever you're doing or not doing, whatever you're saying or not saying, do it for the glory of God and the beautification of the gospel, for the building up of others, and then you will be living under the law of the Spirit instead of the law of sin and death, which is legalism binding you from being loving and making you judgmental if you're not careful. You with me? So we love people not by being tolerant of all things. We love people by not being so legalistic that we can't love them well in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And so this beautiful balance occurs. And what Paul is beginning to do for us, what God is doing for us as Paul does it for the church in Corinth is this. Folks, you are the church. You are free in Christ. You are not bound to the legalism of the law anymore. You are bound to the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. Remember uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit set us free from the law of sin and death. We moved from being under one law, ready, not to being under no law, but to being under the law of the Spirit. And what is the law of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5. Remember this one? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against such things, there is no law. Isn't that beautiful? But they are in of themselves a law, are they not? If you live by that law, you will not need a legalistic system. Because if you are always loving and kind and patient and faithful and good and, and, and self-controlled and gentle, and will you need a legalistic law? No, you won't. So what Paul's saying is, our calling as believers is not simply to behave by obeying the law and avoiding temptation. That was not what God made us for. He didn't come save our souls and redeem our futures so that he could restore us to being well-behaved kids who follow the rules and avoid temptation. And that's what the church often does. It often becomes that. Our job is to act right and to avoid temptation. And we become an ugly thing for the world to watch, don't we? Look at them. They're, they're like, you ain't walking No, no, go that way. No, no, oh, temptation. Ah, I broke a law. God, forgive me. This is not how we're supposed to live. That feels hard. No wonder the world thinks that Christianity is basically a set of rules that smothers you in death. Why would you want to follow Jesus? To which we say, I am so sorry that's your view. It is completely wrong. Following Christ is a freedom beyond our wildest imagination by which we elevate from simply being well-behaved children who avoid temptation to being a loving nation of people that can at any moment lay ourselves down for the sake of your betterment and we are with you for you and we will lead you into freedom because we already know freedom. It's a completely different thing. You see, God is not trying to teach us to follow the rules and avoid the distractions. He's trying to teach us to drive through life in such a way that whatever's thrown us, when rain comes or shine comes, when some driver crosses lanes they shouldn't, when we find ourselves in traffic that shouldn't be, that we know exactly what to do. And here's what we do. We pay attention to everyone else and we drive defensively or aggressively based on what's best for them, not what's on best for us. We don't drive aggressively because we're trying to get to somewhere. We drive aggressively because in that moment, that is what's required to avoid others making ma major mistakes. We drive defensively when it is to avoid others from making mistakes. We always drive with others in mind. And if you do that, if you do that and you don't panic, you will always be on the road an asset to everybody else. And likely, you will enjoy the freedom in life that comes with driving. 
And that's what Paul's trying to say here. That's what God's trying to say to us. Go out into that world, pay attention to the rules. They were for you, but don't live by them so legalistically that you can't divert within them for the sake of others. And when you do, make sure you're doing it for the glory of God, not for idolatry. Don't be pretending with yourself. I'm just hanging at the sports game because I want to be with the buddies and share the gospel. No, 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 no. If that's what you're actually doing, fantastic. I love that. But don't do that if it's actually what matters to you. And you always know that, right? You and I always know when things matter to us that, that much. And that's, that's when he says this, flee from idolatry. But engage in activity with everyone for their sake, for the sake of Christ. So here it is. Ready? This is the simplicity of everything we've talked about today. Everything you say and do or don't say and don't do, ask this question. Will this make the gospel beautiful and bring glory to God? Or will it not? And if the answer is yes, it will, then do it. And if the answer is no, it won't, then don't do it. And if the answer is that's kind of neutral, then pick. Do it or don't do it, doesn't matter. But ask, will this make the gospel beautiful and bring glory to God? So if someone comes to you and goes, do you hear about what happened with Susie? Oh my gosh, you hear what she did? And you go, no, I didn't, but I want to. Ask yourself, will the conversation that's about to take place that we call gossip, will that bring glory to God? And will that make the gospel beautiful? If the answer is no, then excuse yourself gently. And if the answer is yes, then do it. See, now gossip, you can never glorify God. So again, don't, don't take that with you. Well, I'm gossiping to the glory of God. No, no you're not. No, no, you're not. You need to have the person present to that, have that be helpful to them, right? So, sorry, I just, all these little parentheses because I just know it's going to be quoted on Twitter and I'm going to be like, I didn't say that! I mean, I did, but I didn't mean it! And then, you know, all that stuff. So, anyways, I am derailing. We should pray. Let's make sure that all that we do is for the glory of God and the beautification of the gospel. And then we will live well and live free. God, thank you for this beautiful passage simultaneously calling us out of idolatry and yet giving us the freedom to engage in our culture in the things that they find idolatrous but that we can engage in beautifully uh, so that we can be with them present and yet not caught up in the same idolatry they are. Help us to navigate the complications of our cultural context in the same way between entertainment and relationships and resources and the collection of their, thereof. Help us to know when we're doing it because frankly it matters more to us than it ought to or when we're doing it because we found an opportunity to earn the right to be heard by being present with friends in their comfortable spaces to bring the gospel to them so that they might be saved. God, this is how we want to live. So in our relationships, whether it be friendships or work relationships, spousal relationships, child and parent relationships, wherever we have relationships, may we consciously and constantly think, will what I do or say next bring glory to God or make beautiful the gospel? Help us to do that regularly. In our resource collection or distrib distribution, may we do the same. In our circumstances, may we do the same. In our entertainment, may we do the same. God, that none of those things become evil or bad, like meat full of demons, but that they also never become idols that we need and run after. We want to live in the beautiful tension of freedom. So help us to drive through this life well as the church. We are grateful that we are part of your story. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.